And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Donna Dort Donna Dort Donna Dort This is Lee Dort and I'm Donna Dunk This is Lee Dort and I'm Donna Dort I'm Josh Giddy and I'm down to dunk Hey, this is Kenny Hustle and I'm down to dunk I'm Darius Baisley and I'm down to dunk I'm Mike Muscala and I'm down to dunk This is Poku and I'm down to dunk I love cereal. Captain Crunch. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cracklin' Oat Brand. Oh, I can have these. I'm going to share with my team, but I'm a hog most of them. Welcome to Down to Dunk. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. We're part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Go to theathletic.com slash down to dunk and get the athletic for $1 a month for six months. It's time to do it. Uh, I was talking to Sam Vecini yesterday, and he's working on his draft guide, and it's going to be insane. So you've got to go get your subscription today. With me, as always, is my good friend Alex Spears. Alex, what's up, dude? What's up, Andrew? <laughs> and we've got uh, Derek Murray, who is D Murray Hoops on Twitter. He's a national grassroots analyst and NBA draft scout and advisor for Next Pro Hoops, Babcock Hoops, and BasketballNews.com. Derek, what's up, man? Man, I, I appreciate you guys having me very much, Andrew and Alex. It, it means a lot to be here, and within 30 days of the draft, you know, it really starts gearing up, so things feel like they're moving at 100 miles an hour, but it's fun. It's, it's well, insane, yeah. I wanted to ask you, because like, at this point of the process – is like most of your work done or is it just starting to pick up? Cause you're, you're going out and seeing a lot of these guys actually play games. So when they're not playing games, what are you typically doing? Yeah, I'd say most of our work by this point is probably 80, 85% done, at least as far as an evaluation perspective, you know, maybe even more now that the combine's over. Now it's figuring mm-hmm. out the Intel side of things, who's going where, who likes who smoke screens versus real, um, what agents are trying to manipulate what, all that kind of stuff. So that work is heavy right now, as well, as well as like the media part of things, which is fun because, you know, on the on the road all year, you're grinding, trying to see everybody you can. And now, like, we have our thoughts on the players, and we're, like, happy to share them. So the the real grunt work is, is done by now. Yeah. So how do you weigh the smokescreen stuff? Because I'm sure you hear a lot of things – right now, it feels like especially right now, teams want other teams to – think the wrong things you know i think if you're the magic your number one job is to convince the thunder or the rockets that you're going to take somebody that you're not going to take so that they will they'll try to manipulate a trade i mean it's all this is all like (laughs) psychological from here it feels like from here to the draft it's like psychological warfare yeah it's psych warfare like that is exactly what it is from the day the combine starts until the 60th pick is made and you know, if anybody says there's like a science or, you know, an algorithm to figuring out what's true and what's not, like, I just, I don't believe that. You know, I don't think the only, the only people who know the truth of any situation are the ones at the original, like, base of it, the originators of it. Like, it is our job to figure out what's real and what's not, but you'll never hear anybody go in the media and actually know. Like, there are those who think they know, there are those who probably know, but for me, like, I have people that have told me things there are certain people that I believe more than others there, you know, depending on how tight that relationship is. But even then there is no 100% certainty that something is real. That's why I like, you know, Matt, like we're never going to get into, Hey, we're hearing this and this because I just think that's a very slippery slope. Um, That's why we don't really get into that. You know, if my personal evaluation matches up with something I'm hearing, then I don't mind sharing it. But again, it's with the caveat of, Hey, I have heard this, and it wouldn't shock me if this A, B, or C, X, Y, or Z, but I stay away from, yeah, this is a smokescreen or this is 100% real because yeah. there is actually no way to 100% do that. So I, I try to be wary of those who act like 
they do know everything because that's generally just not the case. So that's actually a good lead into uh, our, our first question, even though we've asked you a couple questions already. But uh, Jaden Ivey, because you were on the Uncontested podcast a few weeks ago, and you talked about how you thought the OKC interest in Ivy was legit. You know, it is smokescreen season, though, and it's been a few weeks since then. Are you still feeling like there is some truth there that OKC, even even if they're not going to like trade down or, or go after him, that there is interest in him as a player? Yeah, absolutely. Um, seems like a very presty player to me. Um, honestly, shades of Russ when he came out of UCLA. You know, Russ was considered a reach. And I think the John Morant comp is – it's fine. It's a little lazy, but, like, I, I get it. Um, but these combo guards, the elite athlete, like, shooting is a bit of a concern over parts of his career. Ultimate alpha, aggressive, wants to get downhill. Like, who does that sound like? That sounds like an elite athlete that Sam has kind of been drawn to in the past. And when I – you know, when I tell even – people here in OKC, like, hey, like, don't be shocked if the Thunder like Ivy. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I think Chet fits like a glove. If I was to bet on it, it just really wouldn't surprise me if Chet was the pick, as long as Jabari goes one. Again, another smoke screen there. We still have to figure out what number one is. Um, but, yeah, the Ivy interest, you know, he was a guy all year that I thought, all right, this, this feels like a guy that the Thunder would want. And then at the combine, mm -hmm. you start hearing, hey, like, you have people assume there's interest. And at that, at that point, it's like, okay, I'm still not going to buy into this, whatever. But, yeah, I'm, I'm coming more from the perspective of, hey, I know Thunder fans want Chet. At least most it feels like want Chet. Mm -hmm. Let's just position ourselves. I need people to not be surprised if Ivy is the guy that the Thunder like. Yeah. So let's say the Thunder draft Ivy either at two or trade down or whatever it is. Uh, what do you think the fit is between Shea and Giddy and Ivy and do you think those three could ultimately work together? Do you think this is not not even – I mean, I think basketball-wise, I think that there's a lot of questions, but I think even personality-wise, like the Thunder have been through this before with like the Russ, KD, Harden trio. And it wasn't – I mean, a lot of people want to just simplify it down to like it was just the money. That was the problem. That wasn't the problem. Like there wasn't enough room on the team for the stardom of James Harden to, to bloom, you know. And so I just wonder – if like you're opening that same can of worms again, and honestly, like you went to the finals, like you'd open that. If that's what that gets you, then yes, you do it. Uh, but I'm just curious. Like I, I feel like this is a it's, this second go round is interesting because we get to see what Sam learned, you know, in his first go around. And so, just kind of talk me through like if they did take Ivy, what would that, what would it look like? Yeah, I do think it works because Ivy doesn't have to have the ball in his hands at all times. Um, kind of similar to what you know Ben Pfeiffer said on here maybe like a week ago, which mm -hmm. again Ben's great, and I agreed with about everything he said on that. You know, if if the rumors were that the Thunder wanted a true point guard at that point, I would say I don't see this. Like this doesn't make sense to me. I'm not taking the ball out of Giddy's hands, especially not Giddy and Shea's hands. Yeah. But Ivy's ability to get downhill, <clears throat> push the pace, use his elite speed, burst, and athleticism in the half court, I think when that floor opens up, I mean, his half court offense at Purdue, he had two non-mobile seven-footers on the block at almost all times. And look at how the floor has opened up for Tyrese Maxey. Mm -hmm. You know, Philly goes five out, that lane is open, and Maxey just burns whoever he wants to off the dribble, and it's just easy offense at that point. And I think Jaden Ivey is a better offensive talent at this point than I think Maxey was coming out. So if you really look at it as we can spread the floor, as long as there's enough ball to go around, um, then I think it can work with that three guard lineup. Mostly because two of your guards are six foot seven or or bigger. Yeah. So positionally, yeah. I don't think positionally size wise, like you're lo you're losing anything. I mean, Ivy's every bit six three, six four. Like again, phenomenal athlete. The worry for me would if he was a on ball one, where Harden needed the ball. Like without the ball. I could see the frustration. He's like, you know, I'm the guy. I want the ball. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what I, Ivy is going to become in the NBA, which is why the Morant comp kind of annoys me just a little bit because I think Morant's like a pure one, have the ball every single possession, and I don't think Ivy's going to be that way. Does the left hand scare you at all with with Ivy? Like just his lack of. Yeah, the the handles the handles and pull up going to the left need to be cleaned up. Um, I think the tournament game where they got eliminated that showed quite a bit, yeah. especially when he was trying to kill his dribble and elevate for uh, the mid range. Like some of the shots looked pretty rough. Um, handles definitely need to get cleaned up. 
But again, it's his work ethic where like knowing how hard he works is where those concerns are alleviated a bit from me more than other prospects. You know, the word on him is like, there's nothing this kid won't do, won't work, first one in, last one out, whatever cliche you want to use. Like that's what you're getting with Ivy. Um, and that's what I look for at the top. Do you feel similarly about his three-point shot? Yeah, I was a little concerned with that coming into this year. And then I think, did he end up about 36%, yeah. I think was the number at, at Purdue. Um, I, I'm, again, those concerns were alleviated a, a bit for me. I never think he's going to be some elite guy. He's not going to be a 40% guy from three. But again, mm-hmm. as long as he's sitting mid-30s in the NBA, then, then I'm, I'm good because of all the intangibles, um, the aggressive nature, like the leadership, all that other stuff that you're going to get with him. So you brought up Chet earlier, and we've been talking about Chet now for a few months, and it seems like every mock draft has Chet going number two. So Thunder fans are pretty familiar with him at this point, but I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on his position in the league and what type of front court partner would work best. Because last year, you know, Evan Mobley, most of us were thinking about him as a center during the pre-draft process. Then he ends up in Cleveland, plays a ton of minutes at the four next to Jared Allen. Do you think Chet is a five on day one? And then what are the qualities that you would look for in a front court partner with him? Yeah, I do. I think he's a five um, day one. Again, mostly because he has the ability to be that anchor on defense. Like Thunder needs shooting, Thunder needs defense. Great. He is he is the easy answer to both of those things. Um, and I think he's a five because you're going to just put him down near the paint and people are going to avoid trying to get to the rim. Like it really is amazing with him. Like when he's not on the floor, it's a gaping hole, and all of a sudden the rim pressure comes from the other team. So mm-hmm. I would play him as the five. Um, I think if you wanted to play him minutes at the four, you could because I think his offensive kind of – I think the game for him is going to be more on the perimeter, not from a creation standpoint. I don't see him running a ton of pick and rolls. I see that responsibility staying with you know Giddy, Shea, Poku if it continues to develop. I see him more of a spot-up guy. So if you look at him – I. I don't want to put kids in box because of what they can become, but a stretch five, if you will, is kind of how I look at him. He's going to anchor the paint on the defensive end, and he's going to play outside, can initiate a little bit for you on offense, and is going to be at the top of the key because he's a great passer too. You know, great vision. If he's the one in the Jokic-esque role at the top where he's actually being a floor general with the ball at the top of the key, that's a win because I think he can do that. So stretch five, if I had to kind of pick a position, is what I'd put him as. What are your biggest concerns with Chet? Outside, everybody knows the body's a concern. If you have eyes, you know that the body's a concern. Outside of that, what are your biggest concerns with Chet like becoming the ultimate version of himself? Yeah, I think it's not even so much an ult- like a concern with what the ultimate version of him looks like. It's that I think he's more of a spot-up shooter and a floor-stretching big than an offensive initiator which is where the Jabari potentially and the Paolo, especially the, you know, the Bancaro stuff comes up where I think he's the guy that can be your offensive engine. I just don't see Chet as an offensive engine, at least quickly in the league. Um, again, at Gonzaga, he was not asked to run a bunch of pick and rolls. I think in synergy, there were 12 pick and roll possessions of what they actually tagged in their, in their video stuff mm-hmm. in the whole season. Mm-hmm. And again, it's up to us to figure out, okay, is that because Gonzaga didn't let them? because they had a bunch of talented guards or is that because it's just not going to be his game at the college level or at the pro level. So it's less of what my concerns are. Um, I don't think there's necessarily anything where I say he can't X or won't be able to do these things on a pro floor. It's more of, is this the role he's going to want to fill and where does that upside get capped? If your role isn't a heavy usage on ball guy on offense. And then as far as a front court partner, would you be prioritizing size at the four with Chet? I, I would actually probably try to go your smaller athletic, like small ball four. Like, a, okay. like in this draft alone, like a Liddell type is probably what I would try to go with um, if, if I was trying to pair a perfect four with him at my perceived five. Um, okay. Somebody that can pull it out on the inside. But again, if Chet is shooting on the outside, who's tough enough to get in there and rebound? But I don't think I'd put another seven-footer in there next to him. So you you brought up the idea that when you were scouting Ivy, you were thinking in your head, oh, this guy looks like a Presti pick. And Thunder fans say that all the time, too. Like we say, oh, he seems like a Thunder guy. 
and we don't really it's hard for us to verbalize what that actually means so like when you are thinking that like what are those qualities that you're looking at in prospects that make you think of sam presti yeah and you know every guy every player you know certain executives or teams come to mind like obviously all year the chet and orlando thing was like a perfect connection in people's mind it's like oh that i think i've heard you guys talk about it before like that front office historically picks long weird unique unicorns with seven plus wingspans mm-hmm. so all year it's like oh orlando gets one chet's the guy that was just my assumption uh i think for for the thunder i look at elite athletes with stupid high upside like if it clicks this is the dude this is a potential top 15 player in the league like that kind of stuff at the top of the draft screams thunder to me and it just always has um so that's why like we we really thought that the Thunder were going to try to go get Mobley last year because if it yeah. clicked, like I know the hype was all around Cade, it was all around Jalen Green, they're going to be amazing. But if every player in a draft hits their 100 percentile outcome, Mobley was the one that was like, oh, this guy, this guy is ridiculous. Could be Anthony Davis. Um, and Ivy, when you watch him play, when you get him on a spaced NBA floor, if it really clicks with him and that shooting is there with the athleticism and kind of alpha mentality he has. I mean, it just screams like this could be one of the best players in the league if it clicks. So I just look at it as, okay, everybody hits their 100 percentile outcome. This seems like a guy worth betting on who's not afraid to bet on that kind of upside, Sam. That's really interesting because we we had a question from a listener, and we've been talking about this idea that we feel like the player philosophy has shifted in OKC over the last couple of years. And so Austin Walsh asked, I'd love to hear Derek's thoughts on how OKC has evolved in player philosophy since his time with them. Seems they went for hyper-athletic players that they hope could shoot, now more high-IQ, versatile, skilled players. Can you talk about why this happened or if this is more perception than reality? It almost sounds like you're saying maybe it's just because they haven't had a pick at the very top of the draft that it is more perception than reality. Yeah, I think it's a little more perception. And I think you're starting to see that actually league-wide as well. You know, as teams institute analytics into their scouting departments more and more, as new companies, you know, start to come out and develop analytical tools. Like I spent a year with Sports Info, Info Solutions where we took, I want to get too much into like their proprietary stuff, but like we tagged the game in a different way. Um, so like an example is on defense instead of just steals and blocks, like we're calculating and tagging correct rotations. We're calculating the decision making in players is what we were doing. And I think a lot of teams are saying, okay, like, Sometimes the decision-making and the mental speed processing of things actually translates really well. So I think league-wide, you're seeing some teams shy more away from athleticism and elite you know, potential perceived upside and more into, okay, what do we think is going to translate within year one or two from a decision-making standpoint? So I don't think that's just Thunder-related. I actually think it's probably more league-wide. Yeah, hmm. I, I had also heard that when they were building the Westbrook-Durant teams – they were looking for specific guys to fit those players and the guys they needed were like non-ball dominant, like defenders, play finishers only because these guys are going to soak up so many possessions. And now that you have a guy like Shea, it's like, okay, this guy's going to be pretty moldable. He doesn't have to have, you know, 25 shots a game. He can survive on 12 if he needs to. And so, I just wonder if it's also just personnel driven too, because I mean, Presti came from the Spurs. Like he's seen like the beautiful basketball they played in like 2014 and whatnot. And I think that he, I don't know. I just, I, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how he builds this team out because I do think that he's gets, he gets a chance to learn from like his first time around. And then, you know, maybe even put together a team that looks more like the kind of basketball that he kind of envisions. Um, so there's just a lot of interesting things about this rebuild. Uh, Let's go to a question about pick 12. So Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report mentioned yesterday in a podcast that he's been hearing a lot of noise about OKC trying to move up from the 12th pick. Looking at the mid-lottery range, are there any guys that stand out to you as obvious targets for the Thunder if they did try to move up? This is one of those where a cop-out answer would be like, yeah, you know, this guy fits. (laughs) I have heard absolutely nothing as far as the Thunder trying to trade up. So I haven't even tried to go there. I yeah. think, again, I, I trust and I love Jake Fisher. So if he says that, I believe that is real. I have, I have not had that discussion with anyone. Um, what's interesting is I think if they did trade up from 12, that would be the pick where it's a name out of thin air 
no one even had an idea that the Thunder liked him. Yeah. No one even had an idea that Thunder worked him out. Probably flew somewhere in private in a secret workout. Like moving up from 12 to get that guy is the one that I would consider like the ultimate secret. There's probably no way, no way to figure out who that actually is. But the concept of trading up to get their guy, totally believe that. But it would honestly be kind of foolish to try to predict a name. Uh, although there are a couple players like talent wise and position wise, I do think that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who are those players? I think Malachi Branham is a guy that is just absolutely skyrocketing across um, across the league. Like his second half of the year, especially the second half of Big Ten play, uh, was special. He showed that he was a guy that can put the offense on his shoulders and go win a game by himself on all three levels. And you know, based on what I'm hearing, he's crushing interviews, and everybody just loves him. Like he'll be the ultimate basketball and culture locker room fit. Hmm. Um, so I think he's a guy that's worth going to get. AJ Griffin to me is a guy worth going to get. If you think that he will return physically to what he was pre injury, mm-hmm. because that high school tape pre injury is <laughs> it's, it's incredible. So if you think that he's worth like that, his body is going to come back to quote normal or what it was pre injury, then yes, that's a guy worth going to get. Uh, I mean, Dyson Daniels obviously is is getting a lot of top five, top seven buzz at this point. Other than that, it's it's hard for me to say. Like, I think Usman Diang will be there at twelve. Mm-hmm. I love the upside with Diang. Um, I think he's absolutely worth picking at twelve. If he's there. Maybe you think the Spurs like him at nine. That would be the reason to go up. Of okay, I know how they think. I know how they think. Wouldn't shock me if the Spurs wanted him at nine. Okay, now we have to get to eight. But those are just the names that pop up immediately, kind of looking at our board of that makes sense if they were to try to go do this. Yeah. I'm, you mentioned uh, Malachi Branham. Uh, Matt Babcock, who you work with, had a like extended Q&A with him yesterday that was posted on YouTube. So it was the first time I had really gotten to see Malachi speak. And just like you said, like I feel like he aced that interview as yeah, well. They're just falling um, in love with him. <laughs> yeah. So, so Thunder fans should definitely go watch that. I wanted to ask you, you – you mentioned earlier how like the scouting part is kind of wrapped up and we know that from the team perspective, now they're going through a lot of interviews with all these prospects. I was listening to a Twitter spaces yesterday with Raphael Barlow of NBABigboard.com, And he mentioned that he had heard that a guy he was high on as a prospect had done poorly in interviews. I was wondering if you could tell us more about just the interview process in general and what red flags could reveal themselves for teams in those conversations. Yeah, that's, that's where people really end up dropping at and, and past the combine is interviews because mm-hmm. nothing on the court has changed. Your game sample, your, the film, like it's already done. Nothing has changed. But, you know, I, on the uncontested, I kind of said, you know, it's almost you can, you can compare it to dating. You know, you know five minutes into a coffee or a drink with somebody whether or not this is going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you, you just kind of know immediately. Um, that's probably the quickest like example i could have is you know you just know if this is going to work um you really kind of dig in some of these teams really try to confuse players some of these type uh, teams really try to get in and dig into how a kid is wired um some some people based on where you're drafting you want a guy who's going to come in and be a role guy some teams are looking for the alpha some teams are trying to figure out okay does he actually want to work harder is he just happy to get that money and then the work ethic's gone that's what you're trying to find out in interviews. And even if a kid is supremely talented, if you don't think he's going to come in and work, that puts a cap on how high you can pick a kid. You know, if I have a top 10 pick, even if you were one of the most talented kids in the draft, but I don't believe you're going to work. And something in the interview was a red flag to me of, okay, I think he enjoys being good at basketball, but is happy with how good he is today. I'll pick the kid who has something to work on that I believe is going to give me hundred percent day in and day out for the entire rookie contract. So that's why I think you see guys guys falling. Um, I have some ideas on who that player would be that Barlow was talking about, but and that's one of those things I I, I won't go into. Maybe maybe after the draft I can go into that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's just interesting. It's it's vibe. It's how do they fit in the organization? It's how are they wired? Um, and it feels they- like it can go both ways because I mean I remember with Lamelo like there were a ton of stories about how like terrible he was in interviews, and I don't know if that's the reason why he drops to three, but like. Clearly, that didn't matter that much in retrospect because he ends up being like a great player and he, you know, he made the all star game. So 
I, I always wonder about that too. Like, are, are you putting too much weight into this like one conversation with a prospect and letting it cloud too much of what they've shown on the basketball court? I think that can happen. What I'll give LaMelo credit for is the concerns that teams had with his interviews and with him going into the draft. He has answered far and away and improved with the things that the teams wanted him to improve on in Charlotte. And he did mm-hmm. it in year one. Mm-hmm. So the concerns that were there, um, I don't think that Charlotte has those concerns anymore. I think they were addressed and he really answered a lot of questions and matured and was able to fix and correct the things that, that people wanted to. So that's props to him. I think the concerns were real, but he stepped into the pro environment and was just ready to go. And it's like, okay, like this kid is here and he is ready for this. He is ready mm-hmm. for this stage um, and really developed as a person, which I think has helped him. Um, I do think you can put too much stock. You know, sometimes your gut reactions just and your gut feelings stick with you. Um, that's where you really have to kind of weigh out like gut versus what the tape says versus what your scouts who maybe have seen him in person five times say. You know, it, it would be unfair. Again, just like just like everyday life, like you maybe we don't know what that kid went through this morning. Maybe we don't know if he got a phone call from his family this morning that something has gone wrong and he's just not in a headspace to do this at a high level right now. You know, there are a lot of assumptions you could make that could get you in trouble. Um, I think the psych warfare part is something to monitor. I mean, I don't think it's out of the question that you have an agent tell a kid to tank an interview to try yeah. to manipulate where he goes. Yeah. So it's like, okay, is this kid being bad in the interview on purpose? But he's actually a great kid and we want him. His agent just doesn't want him here. Yeah. That's where the, the, the war, that's where the psych part of it kind of comes into play too. Yeah. How much of that should deter teams? Because I, I mean, I know that like it's not only interviews, but like medicals and stuff like that. Like agents try to steer prospects to different markets uh, very intentionally. Um, I guess as a team, like, I mean, and the Thunder, one of the teams that maybe would get, have prospects steered away from just because it's Oklahoma city and like people don't want to live here. Uh, so I'm just curious, like as a, if you're a team, like how much do you weigh that stuff and like figure out like, Oh, they, they just don't want to be here, but we, we want them anyways. We love, you know, what they did at X school and you know, how much do you weigh that kind of stuff? Because, I mean, I, I know of stories of teams that have passed on guys just because they got inaccurate information. Yeah. I think, you know, some of the advice I got early in my career was that medical trumps all. And I think a lot of front offices do look at that, where if there are medical questions, you can't get them cleared up in the pre-draft. The agent will not give you the information. They won't let your doctors kind of diagnose or give their um, perspective on injury and what that recovery would look like. I do think that in itself would make teams – kind of shy away mm-hmm. of we don't know what the knee is going to look like here. And if we can't definitively say we are comfortable taking him, then cross him off the list. So that's where an agent I think can use medicals to make sure he's not picked by a certain team. Um, as far as like picking somebody, especially here at OKC or other really small markets, I have not had this discussion with any front office guys. I haven't brought it up to anybody, but just me personally, I would value maybe like a small town guy who's loyal to a fault who wouldn't mind staying in OKC for multiple years and multiple contracts. Yeah. Um, again, hope no Thunder fans take this. Like that has not been shared with me at all. That is me saying I would value that yeah. if I was a decision maker going into a draft of does this kid, is this kid just dying to get to New York or LA? Because if so, I don't know if I'm picking him because I don't know if I have him in five years. Mm-hmm. So what is the opportunity cost of leaving that talent on the table for five years, but the guy you do draft, maybe you have for 12 because you know he'll stay with you. So yeah. I think you have to kind of take that into account too. And again, that's where you have to have that relationship with that agent where you say, tell me the truth about your kid. Is he a loyal guy or does he want to go where the bright lights are? Because that could influence our decision here. Yeah. And, and I mean, Sam is doing that. You know, it's, no secret why he's picking international players and the kind of players that he is. And he got up. I was there when they introduced all the rookies last year here in OKC. He talked about how like they picked not only these players, but these people. And a lot of people were like, Oh, come on, Sam. Like you need to you need to pick like the most talented players or you need to swing for the fences. It doesn't matter what the kind of people. And I think and I keep referring to this, but I think that's one of the things that Sam learned like in the first go around. It's like you have to have the right kinds of people to exist here and to form like a really good team and a, a group of guys that want to stay together. Uh, I think that's 
a hundred percent part of that. I think like the Shangun test that they that he talked about, where they did like the however long that psychological test was, is like that's a part of it. Like how how do you do not only on the test, but like are you willing to take it? Um, you know, I think all of those things are like a piece of this puzzle for the draft. Which I mean, it's just interesting because you look at the draft and you think, oh, it's just about acquiring talent and let's get the most talented guys. Uh, there is just it's so complex uh, and interesting to me. Yeah, that's why a lot of draft discourse on Twitter can sometimes be really frustrating. Yeah, because it's like, man, it's not just as simple as this guy's good at this, therefore let's take him because it makes sense. Yeah, it's can you convince your owner to give you sixty million dollars to invest in that kid right. when he looks you in the eye and says, "Hey, COVID kind of killed our books." I need you to convince me right now in 90 seconds why this kid and not this one. Mm-hmm. Like that goes far. But you may, you might not even talk about basketball at that point. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, but it's just the casual fans and whatnot. Again, not their fault. I mean, before I really got into this, I didn't think about that stuff either. So it's just something to think about, though. Um, so as a scout, you're seeing a lot of these prospects in person. What do you think are the major benefits to scouting a player in person as opposed to just watching the film? And are there any examples you could give us of things you picked up on in person that you might have missed if you were just looking at the film? Yeah, one example that I have of like something that stuck out for me. So in 20, I don't remember if it was 17 or 18, there was a kid on a Big 12 team who I loved the film. I was all about it. Um, I was thinking, you know, I'd take this kid in the second round, no doubt. I love this. I love this. I love this. I need to go down and see him in person. So I went down. They came to Norman. Went down, sat right behind the the visitors bench, and the kind of teammate he was to to put it nicely, like if I'm a coach, I wouldn't want that kid anywhere near my team, my locker room. Disrespectful to coaches, disrespectful to oh, the wow. team captains, hmm. all this kind of stuff. So if you don't see on film, and you know, then my the buddy that I was tight with on that staff, I call him after the game. I'm like, hey, let's meet up. You know, let's meet up downtown tonight. We get together. I was like, dude, you got to tell me about so-and-so because what I saw tonight, I did not like. Like, I'll take him off my board. And wow. that's where our relationship, he looked at me, he said, take him off. He said, because I wouldn't advise you to take him anyway. Like, he wins Jeez. us games, but you don't want it. So, like, those kind of those kind of things are what I look for in person. I want to see how they move. I want to see how, you know, how fluid they are, how actually big some of these guys are, which is why – uh, Jeremy Sohan to me is very enticing. Yeah. I know that he was pretty inefficient at times this year, but when you see him in Norman Stillwater, saw him at the NCAA tournament um, against North Carolina, like you get up next to him and you talk about fluid athlete. I'm like, man, like this, this is what they look like when they've still got some stuff to figure out. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's the stuff I look like. And then again, connecting with the coaches or whoever it is on staff that you trust. And for me, some schools, that's a manager, Sometimes that's a kid on the end of the bench who never plays, a walk-on, the head coach. It can be anybody. But you can have those conversations in person about, I need you to like genuinely tell me about this kid. Um, that, that's the value in person to me. And finding out how big they are because a lot of times yeah. it's just honest. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Sohan. Let's say the Thunder take Chet and Sohan's there at 12. I know a lot of Thunder fans are – they have like Andre Robertson PTSD and they just don't want – anything to do with a guy who can't shoot the basketball. Do you think, I mean, obviously they're valid concerns, but would you take him anyways? Do you like that fit next to a guy like Chet? What are your, what are your thoughts on him as a player? Yeah, he's not Andre Roberson. Um, we'll just go ahead and like nix that one. Like I know the shooting, it, it can be an issue, but again, the way this kid moves, you know, I think Roberson was probably a, did he ever get an all NBA anything defensive award did he ever get anything did he make the all i think he did. i think he made a second team yeah i think that's the second right. team like I, again i think sohan is going to be a very high level on ball defender i don't know if he's ever roberson defense good because that is a very high bar mm-hmm. but offensively you watch how creative and crafty he is in the lane he actually scores like a variety of ways off the dribble and again I will admit it was not very efficient. There were some times you're like, dude, why did you even put that on the deck? That shot wasn't even close. Uh, watch the game up in Stillwater. I think you, I went up there this year. I think you went three for 12 from the floor. Yeah. You know, statistically an ugly game. But the three buckets he made, spin moves, being able to pivot and get guys on his hip and on his shoulder, just create space with that length and how, how crafty he is. 
again, that's one of those little things where I'm like, okay, I can work with this. Six nine, long arms, really, really fluid athlete, not afraid of a big stage at all. And there's enough here on offense to where there's a baseline to work with and teach you like some of the more finesse moves. I'm good. Like if they would pick him at 12, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bat an eye. I wouldn't go, I wouldn't throw my hands up. Oh, what are they doing? Like not in any way. Yeah. Hmm. And he's from Guyman or he's born in Guyman. Yeah. Born in Guyman. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. When it's time for me to find a job, I went right to LinkedIn Jobs. They helped me find the right employer, and it was, man, very, very easy process. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash dunk. That's linkedin.com slash dunk to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, okay, I want to ask you about another prospect. Uh, this guy is 28 years old. I've had several, several listeners ask about him. It is Vasily Michich. Now, Michich uh, is coming off back-to-back EuroLeague Final Four MVPs, EuroLeague Championships. There have been some reports that he wants to come to the NBA, but not with OKC, who hold his rights. I was wondering if you have any experience watching or scouting Michich and how you would describe him as a player if you have. I mean, his scoring is special. Like, ultimate three-level guy. Uh, I've, I've seen the reports, too, of, you know, he doesn't want to play necessarily here in OKC. We have the rights. I think that was a great move to get the rights. I don't even remember what deal that was in. Uh, I do think he is a – the Horford deal? Yeah. I think he is an extremely valuable asset that can help you add uh, either draft slots or futures. Because I think Mm -hmm. if you're a team in the NBA who says, hey, we need a guy who can score right now, like Midget is a good option. So I do think that's a a nice chess piece to have uh, if he doesn't want to be here. Are there any teams in the league that you think would or should be an obvious suitor for Midget? Not really. I got to be honest. I haven't. Uh, I haven't really thought about that at all. <laughs> like the, the only one that came to mind immediately for me was the Wizards, just because like they're not in a spot to draft a point guard in this draft, really, um, unless they want to like take Ty Ty Washington. And they're already like it seems like they're the type of team if they bring back Beal that they like want to push for the playoffs. So maybe you need an older point guard, um, and I think he'd be better than their current options. But that, yeah. that was just like the one team that stood out to me. But I think you so, have to look. You have to think you have to look too. If 
is if Kyrie's going to play at all in Brooklyn. Oh yeah, because he would give you some he would give you some on and off ball like versatility and scoring kind of right off the bat. And I don't think he'd come in and demand the ball or spotlight from Durant at all or anybody else that's already there. But I think he provides value if you think you're not getting anything out of Kyrie. So if you were a team, and this may be hard to answer, but if you were a team kind of in that position, thinking about his potential value as a trade asset, like if you were a team that needed a like experienced point guard, needed that scoring, do you feel like a first round pick is like a fair value for him? Yeah, I think late first, um, you know, mid to late first would be pretty fair. I don't okay. think I'd get in. I don't think I'd get into the lottery. But and again, I, I'm looking right now. I don't think Brooklyn has. Uh, they could have the Sixers yeah. pick. They can choose. They get to, to decide today. Yeah, they get to decide. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, let's say that would put him at 23. Pick. Yeah. 23. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could see that because, again, when you have Cam Thomas, you have your young guy of we picked the upside. Let's give him time to figure this out. And it's okay. Do we add another one of those? Mitchich is also going to give you way more value in points than anybody you're going to draft at 23. Yeah at least in the next probably two years, looking at at least who we have mocked and projected around that range, that would make sense to me. Yeah. Uh, Talk to me about Johnny Davis. I'm starting to convince myself that this guy shouldn't be dropping like he has been on draft boards, but I think that he can be had in like the late lottery. Um, I know he had the bum ankle situation where the rest of the second half of the season didn't look very good, but um I'm starting to talk myself into him. Should should I be talking myself into Johnny Davis? I mean, yeah, we have him right there to the Knicks um, at 11 on our on our board right now. If he's there at 12, he makes sense. I mean, toughness, legitimate, you know, 6'5", 200 pounds, physically tough, mentally tough, capable of being an honor off-ball guy in spurts, leadership, two-way impact. Like, you could talk yourself into him at 7, 8, 9 if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, I think the reason he maybe perceived to be slipping right now is because some of these younger guys have some higher upside. Like I think the ceiling for Matherin is extremely high. Yeah. Sharp. We still do not know what's going to happen. Like stuff I'm hearing on sharp will just vary opinion wise every day. I think what would keep Davis from getting to the thunder is somebody valuing um, guards over bigs. Yeah. You know, if those teams don't want to take Mark Williams and Jalen Duran at that point, Ty Ty Griffin and Johnny Davis are the guys. So I think if Duran or Mark Williams goes ahead of 12, that's where we can start to get our hopes up of, okay, like Davis is probably the guy who's going to end up here. Mm-hmm. Hmm. He just strikes me as somebody that could slip in this draft and then people are going to be like, man, why did he go 13? Like what's what's going on here? It happens every single year where this you have like your top like four or five and then you have this range where it's just everybody's – trying to like squeeze as much upside as possible out of whatever prospect is there. And it's just the area of the draft where everybody misses. You know, it's the Jackson Hayes, Kevin Knox area of the draft. And then you get to the 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And it's like, oh, okay, there's actually like really good players in this range. And it's it's a pattern. Like it's happened almost every single year in the draft. And I'm just, I'm trying to like project who the players that are going to be available from like that 10 to 15 range who are falling that you know maybe they shouldn't or maybe they're going to be they're going to be more impactful than the guy who's picked at seven um so johnny davis just feels like that kind of guy to me he will be right on that cusp like every year there's kind of i I I feel like you guys too maybe when you watch the lottery it's i don't want pick x and there's kind of like a definitive i mean last year it was six then i got six hit a home run anyway which again, that's a sign of a great front office. But like last year it was six. This year to me, it was it's five and nine. Mm-hmm. Five and nine, it was where, okay, like this is where you've got to make that really tough call of upside versus floor, you know, reliable versus athleticism. And and you're just weighing out all these kind of things. And again, Davis and Dyson Daniels, Jalen Duran, right there are gonna sit around nine, if I had to guess. And that's where those tough calls are gonna be made. And then I think you're going to have guys like Branham, Griffin, Bochamp, you know, Sohan go right after that. Yeah. And in five years, we're going to go, oh, yeah, well, they went right after. Yeah. Like that, that's, yeah. That's, that's kind of the bunch to me. Yeah. You, you mentioned pick five. Just thinking about like choosing between Keegan Murray and Shaden Sharp, just like oh the most God. opposite players in the yeah. draft. <laughs> that would be so tough. Yeah. That's hard. I mean, Sharp, yeah, just that upside is crazy high but again like there's a reason that 
teams like college film. You look at the guys who were ranked one through 10 in that high school class coming into this year. And we're only really talking about maybe three of them there at the top. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know what it looks like. A lot of people relying on peach jam film right now, yeah. which again, it's good, but who are you playing against? Who was on that team that year? Um, and then Keegan Murray football equivalent to those listening. Don't know about Keegan. He's, he's an all pro left tackle in football. He's the guy that it's not sexy. He's not going to sell a whole bunch of jerseys, but you are going to be very glad that he is on your team. Like yeah. that's that's Keegan to me. How much of Sharp have you seen, like outside of the the YouTube stuff? Yeah, I mean, seeing him in person. I mean, once or twice. I know Matt's seen him a handful of times, mm-hmm. but again, his rise was so late too. Yeah. It was kind of meteoric, like right there at the end. Um, I think from Peach Jam. If I remember correctly, he was ranked considerably lower and then left that weekend number one. Yeah. So, so the, the 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 conversation is, oh yeah, Sharp was the number one player in his class, but if you add seventy two hours to that, he was like twenty something. <laughs> yeah. So that's just something to think about too. We're like, well, okay, well, you know, three hundred and whatever days ago he was number one, plus three, all of a sudden he's twenty fifth. It's like, okay, yeah. well. So that it, it makes you think a little bit more about what exactly we were watching. Yeah, if you're a front office, like at what point in this draft are you, are you just saying, okay, it's worth it just for the risk? Like it's a huge risk, but it's you know the guys that are left, it's yeah, you know, let's it's worth it to take him at X spot. Yeah, I mean, I've heard just from people that I've called around to front offices, anywhere from five to fourteen, fifteen. Wow, I've had some guys say, yeah, if we had five, we would take him. Mm-hmm. I've had multiple. I've had multiple in the top ten say, "Yeah, I think he'll go top ten, but it probably won't be us." Hmm. I'm like, "Okay, well, if multiple of you are saying that, <laughs> right?" Then it's like, "Okay, what is what is that floor?" And if that's the guy that the Thunder want to trade from twelve up to go get, again, like there would be no second guessing that, even if it didn't work. Yeah, similar to the similar to the Poku pick at seventeen, you traded a lot to go get him. Even if we look back and it doesn't work, it is very, very difficult and probably unfair to try to hindsight second guess somebody on making that decision. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So we have some uh, questions from our listeners. Sent them in via Twitter. Uh, this one, the, this one is kind of the same question. It comes from two of our listeners, John Grooms at JGG five one two and at Trey Brown Town. They're basically wondering. You know, what are the concerns that we've historically seen that have been overblown? And what market inefficiencies do you see when it comes to prospect qualities? Like, is there a specific skill set or a quality in a player that you believe is currently being undervalued? Undervalued, I'm not sure. I think that overvalued to me is there is an obsession with some people about on-ball creation. Like sometimes the term mm-hmm. on-ball creation just kind of drives me up a wall because it's like the only thing that matters to some people. Yeah. And while yeah. it does, while it does a lot, you have to project. I try to project guys into what they'll be asked to do on the NBA floor. So, okay, so-and-so, he's not that great of an on-ball creator, therefore he's not A, B, or C. Great. I'm never going to ask him to do that on an NBA right. floor. I, I see him. Kendall Brown as a guy in this year's class. Yeah. In my opinion, he does. He struggles putting it on the deck. Every time I saw Baylor in person, came away, I was like, man, like there's a lot to work on as far as the, the ball handling here. But if you use him as a slashing four, it doesn't matter. And I just think so that can be over. While it is extremely important, I do think that at times it may have gone too far uh, in being like the primary why we like or dislike a player. Um on-ball defense to me is pretty underrated and probably under undervalued. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't even know if I said on or off there. Off-ball defense. It's so like mm-hmm. the team defense. Mm-hmm. Your ability to make smart rotations and be in the correct place at the correct time based on a scheme you're running or just your instinctual, hey, we're just, we're just out here. We're just in man. Your instincts. like Your ability to do that can win you ball games. That's what Keegan Murray does so well, in my opinion. Like Keegan, he's not going to get beat back door. Um, there's, there's not, he's going to see everybody off the ball. He's like a, like a catcher baseball. He sees the whole floor. Um, I think Mark Williams, again, everybody knows about the length and, and the stature and his measurables, but his ability to help off the ball, not even in just post-ups, his ability to come over and rotate and meet you at the rim, I think is special. So 
that's probably just some stuff that I like is, again, that on-ball defense. It's not sexy. There's really not a way to calculate it unless you're running a big, um, you know, basketball analytics company, which a lot of teams pay a lot of money for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's something I look for in guys. I'm so glad you mentioned on-ball creation because that is something I felt this draft process that I haven't felt before. And it's not because I've gotten smarter. It's just like looking at the Thunder team. And because we have Shea and Giddy, I'm looking at the prospects in the lottery way differently than it feels like fans of other teams are. Whether it's like, I mean, Jabari Smith is a great one because I know there's people who don't have Jabari. Like we, we talked to Ben Pfeiffer and Ben had him a little bit lower. But then you think about him on the Thunder and it's like just a totally different conversation because you don't even need him to be this like elite on-ball creator. And so it's just a totally different prospect than it would be for another team. Yeah, I mean, you you put Jabbar in the Thunder, you almost use him as like a Clay Thompson role, and then you can put him on the opposing team's best offensive player outside of maybe a point guard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not looking at him to be your offensive engine. So another question from at me love Thundamo. Uh, in your experience, what is the process for teams to trade up in the draft like? Uh, does a player's agent assist in making moves to get a prospect to a specific destination? Is it all done in secret? I think that there are conversations that that are had of, hey, my player wants to come to you. We know that you like this player. You know, do what you have to do, please, to go to go get us. Um, as far as assisting in it, I'm unaware of that. Maybe there is a, has never been my forte or expertise. Um, I think what really helps guys move up in drafts is knowing how valuable the next draft class is. Hmm. And that's why in a front office, the guys who scout the high school film and the non auto eligible international classes. Um, that's why I think that is so, so important. Like when Houston, cause they gave a future first to go get Shangun, right? Yeah. Two, two future. Yeah. Firsts, so, yeah. so the math there is okay. Where are we going to, if we get Shangun, what do we look like at that point? who on our current projections is available in the 23 and 24 draft or the 22 and 23 draft at that slot. How much do we value that versus Shingun? Yeah. And knowing those classes, like we always try to try to stay a draft ahead. It's like, okay, well, would you rather have 20 this year or 20 next year? Like, it seems like a fun, Oh, let's do an exercise. See what they look like. It's like, no, like you need to know how you actually feel about that. If you're trying to trade up because it's going to take a future asset and you need to know what that next class looks like and who those players are. And you need to know them very well. Yeah. That that's, I think it's such a great point because you looking at the Thunder's draft last year through that lens, it's like, Oh, it makes perfect sense now. Like they didn't, they didn't take Shangun. I don't think they were going to take him. Uh, they wanted Josh Giddy in a, in a draft where, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of guys to like in that range. It's not just Josh, but you look ahead to this draft. It's like, man, there's, nobody that's going to be like an elite on ball passing player. And so could we get him this year and then look at all the bigs that are next year? I mean, it all just kind of comes together a little bit after you see it. Cause at the time at the draft last year, it's like, what is like, what is this? Like, why are they, why do they pick this guy? Why didn't they take Shingun? Like John Hollinger's making me feel horrible about my team right now because yeah. we didn't take Shingun. Oh, he had him. So Hollinger had him like top six or something. Yeah. Him four. Yeah. yeah. I used to, I used to tell, Again, for those listening, like I started in the Thunder business office and I used to try to help my my clients and accounts who great relationships with. Some of them knew what I loved and they were like, why on earth did we do this? I was yeah. like, dude, it will be 700 days until it clicks, but it'll make sense <laughs> once we get there. Why today happened? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like the good front office, they just stay. They stay two years ahead in, in their planning. Yeah. Well, it's become so clear to me this draft season because like we're talking about fits with the Thunder and really the only guy at the top that you have questions about is Jaden Ivey just because it would be another guard. Everyone else, you can imagine the yep. fit on the Thunder really easily. Easy. Whereas for Houston fans thinking about Shingun, like they're having to think about, okay, Shingun is probably not going to be a great defensive player long term. Bancaro is going to be there. Like, yes, that will work offensively, but how big of an issue is that going to be long-term defensively? They're already having to have those fit conversations for a team that won like 17 or 20 games or whatever it was. And and yeah. so that has been such a luxury as an OKC fan through this draft cycle, just to not have to worry about fit all that much. Yeah. I mean, if you knew you were going to tank moving into this year from, from the Rockets' perspective, if you knew you were going to tank and you knew that the th- – 
three big guys were coming into this draft, going to be one, two, three in some order. Just from a numbers and money perspective, trading that much for Shengun didn't make much sense to me. Unless yeah. you thought you weren't going to tank, unless you thought you were going to be maybe a play-in team mm-hmm. by adding those three first that they had last year, because right. um, yeah, Bancaro and Shingun, like that gets, it's extremely talented on offense, defense. You're going to have some real trouble, um, and I do worry about on offense. Do they get in each other's way at all? I mean, I saw, mm-hmm. I think it was Gavoni yesterday, who said there have been recent rumblings or whatever whatever fancy word we want to use for smoke yeah. uh, that Houston is discussing and entertaining adding Ivy at three. Yeah. And I've said that before too. Like, hey, do I think they'll do it? I have no idea. But if I'm making that call, Jalen Green and Jaden Ivy is really, really difficult to beat in a couple years. Yeah. Like yeah. that is probably miserable. You've got two guys who are alphas, hyper-athletic, and all they want to do for 40 minutes is make sure that they that you know they're better than you, and then they can go out and do it. Well, if I'm Houston, like, yeah, Paolo or Cheddar there makes total sense, but I'm at least having the conversation about Ivy, whether, whether I end up doing it or not. So it was yeah. interesting to read that, read that from him yesterday too. Okay, we got a question from OKC Skittles. Would you rather draft a prospect who is a great off-ball offensive threat but a defensive liability? So think of like A.J. Griffin. Or a prospect who is a great defensive player but is an off-ball liability offensively, kind of like a Jeremy Sohan. I mean, there's no – it depends on what your roster looks like. Like there's no there's no way to say kind of what's more valuable. I think just in a vacuum – in a vacuum, I'll take the guy that's a shooter – and I, and I historically, I love defenders. I do. Hmm. That was, When I was playing, I was the guy who, like, I wasn't going to give him any points. But you were not going to score on me. So I love, like, guys who are wired that way. But in today's NBA, spacing the floor and shooting, like, that is what can win you ball games Because it's easier to go find a guy who is an elite off-ball defender that can help you than it is to go out and trade for a guy who's going to hit 40% from three. Um, hmm. Kind of in that, in that same mold of conversation – I couldn't agree more with what you guys said. I don't remember which pod it was on. It might have been just you two doing it. Where you're like, Mark Williams, yes, in a vacuum makes sense at 12. But look at who I can go trade for. It's mm-hmm. centers. Who can yeah. I not trade for? It's the wing shooters. So that's where if I just, again, one quick answer. If I really had to narrow it down, I'll take the guy who can shoot. Because I think in today's NBA, that's what will win you the game. Yeah. And what about, this is a slightly different question, but how much stock do you put into the idea of drafting for the playoffs? Like the idea of 82 game players versus 16 game players has become popular over the last few seasons. Like, do you think there's still value in drafting someone like a Walker Kessler who may not be able to stay on the court in the playoffs? Yeah. I mean, I've had an executive tell me before, yeah, you can have a roster, you know, 16 game players are quote more important to some people, but you got to have the 82 game guys to get you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I believe that. And I do kind of look at, is this an 82-game guy? Is this a 16-game um, guy? For me personally, when I'm drafting at the top, I want the 16-game guys. Mm-hmm. When I get to the middle and the back end of the first and early second, I'm looking for 32s. And that's where, if you just look at the Thunder drafts historically, again, there's no way to project. Please, no one mishear me. I do not know what the Thunder are going to do. <laughs> but you look at... At the top of the draft, they usually swing for upside, and it looks like 16-player guys. And last year going in, I think we had JRE and Sandy Aldama mocked to the Thunder at the early 30s because it's mm-hmm. like this feels like guys are going to want. They are 82-game guys. They're going to be re- reliable and play all season long, and then we'll see the playoff fit when we get there. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's based on what I've been told exactly what they wanted. So um, I just think that up at the top, I'm looking for 16-game guys and – but I do keep it separate. Like when I watch a guy play, I do wonder which one he is, and I kind of have boxes. Yeah. Uh, from at Dennis Todman, any insight into the Thunder's international scouting? Seems like an area they may be targeting as a potential market inefficiency. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to speak to who or how they do things, um, but again, they're very good, and we haven't seen the Thunder take many guys at the top of the draft that played college basketball in a while. Yeah. So. For whatever that's that'll I'll leave it there for whatever that's worth. Okay, this one you don't have to answer if you don't want to. This is from Aaron underscore Toller. On the uncontested, you mentioned some books that Presti had given to you that you constantly reread. Are you willing to share what those books were? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, again, he and other people in basketball have helped me out of my career. I'm only there because it's not because I was so great at something. It's because people invested in me. So I'm always happy to share things I've learned um, and, and, and the books if I can do that. Yeah, the first one was Basketball on Paper by Dean Oliver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh. And Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Just readers beware on thinking fast and slow. That is going to take you a while <laughs> to get through. I have that on that audiobook. Is, that I have started it probably four times and haven't gotten <laughs> yeah. all the way through it. <laughs> like it is, it is tough to get through. Um, I mean, easy way to try to say like what exactly it's about. It's figuring out why you think certain things and then how what you think about certain things affects your decision-making about those things. Yeah. It's like <laughs> I mean, the ultimate the Sam Presti book is what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's really good. Like emotional intelligence, your emotional intelligence, um, your, your EQ will grow a lot by reading that book mm-hmm. because as soon as you have a gut thought about, I mean, I use it on prospects, honestly, mm-hmm. I see a player and I'll call Matt. I don't like this kid at all. Okay. Like why? And I always go back to that book where, what exactly, not just, oh, I didn't like the vibe I got. Was it something you'd seen before? Is it something that you'd, I'd experienced in my own life? Is it somewhere you've missed on a prospect before? Is it something you heard versus what you saw? Like, let's actually dig deep into why I think this way. Um, then you see what biases are there. It really gets into like the decision making part of things. And you can apply it to any aspect of your life. It's a great book, it's just difficult. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from at Panicked Waddle. Who is your biggest draft day heartbreaker? Either someone that you wanted, uh, but OKC took somebody else, or someone that you thought uh, would drop to OKC, but they were picked right before. Yeah, I actually saw that one on Twitter, so I, I looked it up to see, like, huh, I wonder who was there. 2020, Thunder were picking 25th, and Zeke Najee went 22nd. Yeah. Um, Zeke is probably, he may still stand alone as maybe the most likable prospect I've ever talked to. Wow. Um, we did his pre-draft workout in Vegas, uh, a lot of work with him. I was all about it. He was a guy that, oh, he can't create. He can't create. I wouldn't take him, you know, this high or whatever. It's like you have a 10 out of 10 human being. You have a 10 out of 10 work ethic. You have a 6'11 kid who moves like a wing and wasn't allowed to shoot at Arizona because of the way they ran their offense, but had actually won the high school national championship three-point shooting competition. And no one like it's like people just didn't want to remember that for some reason. So I was I was really heartbroken when three spots ahead. It was like everyone once we got to fifteen, I was like, yes, no Z, no Z. <laughs> I was I was wanting that one pretty bad. Uh, okay, this one's from at four hundred five fan Andrew. Uh, call me calling out Andrew. Doesn't think there's enough difference between the seven to eight range and twelve to trade up. Uh, this, this particular person thinks that sharp. AJ Griffin, Matherin are better enough to move up. What do you think? You kind of mentioned like how five was a kind of inflection point in the draft, and then you mentioned nine. So do you feel like those guys in kind of the seven to nine range, one, do you think that they'll go in that range? And then do you think there's a big difference between them and who you have at like 10 through 12? I think just positionally there's a difference. Like you look at Sharp and Matherin. You're like, okay, here's two, three, three, two with unlimited athleticism and scoring pop. Like those, I think, are considerably more valuable. And those will be the ones where I just do not see them getting to that 12 because Mm -hmm. of the archetype style of play. And again, uh, like you can't really see it on film. There's a huge difference between an NBA athlete and a college athlete. Like you guys know this, you go to games, like it's not, it's not the same. And those two have it to where day one, they are fine Mm -hmm. on an NBA floor. Um, Down around 12, it's they're great athletes. There may be a little bit of a learning curve there. So, on, on one hand, I do actually say that those two, maybe even Dyson Daniels at this point, I do not think are there at 12. They are worth and better at taking in that seven to eight range. Mm-hmm. It also just takes one team to like one guy that high that no one knows about. Like I never saw Josh Primo going at, was it 12 to San Antonio 12, last year? Yeah. Like that one, I mean, we had him, I think we had him at 2021 and we're one of the higher mocks on him. Mm-hmm. Like that just came out of nowhere. So that will happen in this class where there's not really a concrete, oh, I wonder what this grouping is. Like someone at seven, eight, or nine will take somebody where we go, whoa, like that feels early 
and it'll bust it all up. But Matherin and Sharp, I do actually think there's a difference between those two and what you can get at 12. Mm -hmm. Uh, At Matthew underscore Hosey, given what you know about Presti in the front office and how they value players under contract, how much should we read into the fact that Lou hasn't been extended after he became eligible in March? Do you think that Lou will be traded around the draft? Just to go gingerly, I probably just won't answer that one in any way. Um, <laughs> not because I know anything. Yeah, it's yeah. because I know nothing and yeah. do not want at all to give off that idea. Yeah, of anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just I'm going to play that one safe. I know nothing. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so that leads us to our final question. Uh, so in promoting this pod, I asked if anyone had any questions for you about sleepers or snoozers. Now I, I made up the term snoozer. Didn't know what it was when I typed it, I but I've since. I've since defined it for us. So if if a sleeper is someone like Herb Jones last year, who some smart people did have a first-round grade on, I believe John Hollinger had him ranked 23rd. That's a sleeper. A snoozer would be someone like Jose Alvarado, where no one was talking about him in the draft process, undrafted. He makes the team, ends up being a key piece on a playoff team. Is there a player who you have scouted that you aren't positive will be drafted, but you feel good about them making it in the league? Um, Darius Days of LSU. Okay. Jumps out to me. I enjoy speaking to him very much. He is every bit of six foot seven, measured well at the combine, understands his role. I think he's a floor stretching, athletic dunker spot, corner three, models his game after PJ Tucker when it comes to toughness, energy. I think you're getting defense and shot making there. Uh, I think Darius Days has a chance to stick for quite a while. Um, I would watch, I think Christian Braun is one that has a chance to stick in the league for a little while. Um, we, we're just kind of hearing teams be all over the place on him, mm-hmm. but I do like the game. A potential schnoozer, which I'm just going to keep using that because I can't stop thinking <laughs> about that. Um, I think Iverson Molinar is a guy who's close, depending on some people have him at 40, some people have him at 100, yeah. Um, yeah. just depending on where you look. Bryson Williams at Texas Tech, or from Texas Tech, should I say, is probably one to watch. And then I don't know if he's going to come out this year. Musa Diabate at Michigan is one that, based I mean, based on my gut, he probably goes back to school. But if he stayed in, does he get drafted? I don't know. But like, I think that kid sticks for a long time too. Great, this is an awesome answer. Uh, Derek, not to so- look up all those guys. Right, I know. <laughs> Some more homework <laughs> to do here. Uh, Derek, thanks so much for coming on the show. We can follow you at D Murray Hoops. Go read your stuff at basketballnews.com. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, thanks for having me.